Did you know that about one in three individuals who identifies as a sexual minority reports having self-injured, sexual minorities being those that are lesbian, gay, or bisexual, and that about half of all gender minorities report having self-injured, that is, transgender and gender-diverse individuals? These rates are significantly higher than their straight and cisgender counterparts. But why? Why are LGBTQ individuals at higher risk for self-injuring than those that are not LGBTQ? Well, Anyone who just celebrated Pride Month can likely answer this question. But what factors place LGBTQ individuals at risk for self-injuring and what factors, if present, serve a protective function against self-injury? And what about the intersection of race, sexual orientation, and gender identity? What are some unique challenges faced by those who self-injure and are a minority in multiple ways, such as being a person of color who is also a sexual minority and or gender nonconforming? To answer these questions and to talk about non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, among LGBTQ individuals, I am joined today from the University of Central Florida in Orlando by Dr. Lindsay Taliaferro. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. In 2013, I was in Atlanta attending the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine annual meeting. As I was looking over the conference program, I saw a research poster on non-suicidal self-injury, surprisingly a topic not often addressed at the conference. I knew I needed to meet this researcher, so I made it a point to go talk to her at her research poster. That person? Dr. Lindsay Taliaferro. We quickly became friends, and when I attended my first IISSS conference just three months later, she was the only face I recognized. However, I am thankful to say that knowing her was key in helping me to meet other leaders in the field of self-injury, many of whom have already contributed to this podcast. Dr. Lindsay Taliaferro received her PhD in health behavior from the University of Florida. She then completed a postdoctoral fellowship in the Healthy Youth Development Prevention Research Center in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Minnesota. Currently, she is an assistant professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences in the College of Medicine at the University of Central Florida. Her primary role focuses on population health research with an emphasis on the prevention of suicide and non-suicidal self-injury among youth. She applies a strengths-based approach in her research by focusing on identifying protective factors that might reduce risk of suicide ideation, suicidal behavior, and non-suicidal self-injury, as well as facilitate healthy development and use of healthcare services among adolescents and young adults. A population of particular interest to her is sexual and gender minority youth. In 2019, Dr. Talia Farrow won a sexual and gender minority early Stage Investigator Award from the National Institutes of Health. Welcome, Dr. Talia Farrow. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. To start things off, how did you become interested in researching self-injury to begin with? Uh, so as you mentioned, I completed a postdoctoral fellowship in adolescent health. Prior to that, I was in my doctoral program. I had focused on adolescent suicide prevention. So when I started my fellowship, ironically, I just received a journal in the mail that I did not request that was dedicated solely to adolescent non-suicidal self-injury. It was the first time I had read about the behavior. 
Um, but reading the articles in that journal piqued my interest, particularly the relationship with suicidal behavior. I was fortunate to be in Minnesota for my postdoc because I believe at the time the Minnesota Student Survey was the only population-based epidemiological survey of adolescents to include a question on non-suicidal self-injury. And the survey also includes protective factors, which is unique to that survey. So I contact one of the authors of one of the articles that was in that journal, Jennifer Mjolenkamp, who is in Wisconsin, who I know you've already spoken with. And since then, which is a long time ago, over 10 years ago, that was the first paper we published was examining the Minnesota Student Survey and looking at differences in risk and protective factors associated with non-suicidal self-injury and a suicide attempt among adolescents during the past year. And how did you become interested in researching self-injury among LGBTQ individuals? So I started focusing my research program on LGBTQ youth when really I learned about the high rates of self-injury and suicidality among this population. And when I found within my own research that same-sex sexual experiences or minority sexual identity were risk factors associated with different mental health outcomes. And then I really decided to focus on this particular population because of the high risk. Are there differences in rates of self-injury among lesbian, gay, and bisexual individuals compared to those that identify as transgender or gender non-conforming? Or are they similar rates? So there was a recent review done, if you're thinking of rates of self-injury in 2019, looking at NSSI among all LGBTQ individuals for research published to that date, found the lifetime prevalence rate among sexual minorities was 30%, and lifetime prevalence rate among gender minorities was 47%. Past year rates were 25% for sexual minorities and 47% for gender minorities. Just to contrast that with lifetime and past year prevalence rates were 15% and 11% respectively among heterosexual and or cisgender individuals. So it's significantly higher. I just published a recent review of literature that was conducted in the last five years for youth, so 18 and under, and we found that sexual minority youth were up to six times more likely to report self-injury than their heterosexual peers. 58% of gender minority youth reported lifetime self-injury, and approximately half of gender minority youth reported past year self-injury, with 40% of those reporting repetitive self-injury, meaning 10 or more episodes within the past year. So again, when you're thinking of high-risk populations, it's LGBTQ in general, but then within that subset, youth are an extremely high risk within the LGBTQ population. Transgender and gender non-binary youth do report increased mental health disparities compared to their cisgender LGBTQ peers, including higher rates of self-injury and suicidality. If we're kind of thinking of why this might be, so transgender and non-binary youth may occupy marginalized identities that are associated with both their sexual and their gender identities, among other identities that they would have as well, that make them more susceptible to increased risk factors and therefore greater engagement in self-injury. Leeson does the just a national school climate survey of all the experiences of LGBTQ youth in our schools. In 2019, they found that transgender and non-binary students were more likely to have felt unsafe and experienced higher levels of victimization because of their sexual orientation. This is among transgender and non-binary students compared to their cisgender LGBTQ peers. 
Not surprising, transgender non-binary students also reported more hostile school experiences than their LGBTQ cisgender peers. That's kind of outside within the social environment and intrapersonally. Transgender and non-binary youth also may experience gender dysphoria. So when they have discomfort and distress between their assigned gender and their gender identity may also increase risk for this population. So a couple of the risk factors there that are specific to transgender and gender nonconforming youth is a combination of their sexual orientation and gender identity that maybe those that are LGBTQ do not experience. Exactly. So there's multiple marginalized identities we kind of talk about. They might be a sexual minority and a gender minority. And then we can see those multiple identities relate to increased victimization and possibly discrimination experiences within their environment. Schools has got a huge environment for adolescents. So we're thinking of peer discrimination, victimization experiences that are greater than even their LGBTQ cisgender peers. And as far as lesbian, gay, bisexual, questioning, queer individuals, are there differences in that group specifically within that group separate from transgender? Yeah, so that's an important question. And this is where more research needs to be conducted is within the subgroups of LGBTQ individuals including between transgender and non-binary individuals. We need a lot more research there too, but looking across sexual minority subgroups, because most research creates composite groups, researchers do find that bisexual individuals are more likely to engage in self-injury than their sexual minority peers. They're also more likely to report suicidality and other high-risk behaviors. In our review of the literature, we found that bisexual youth demonstrated rates of NSSI that were six to eight times higher than their lesbian or gay and heterosexual counterparts, which is consistent with the review of literature on individuals in general, not just youth. In one of my older studies, we found that the prevalence of repetitive self-injury, that was the 10 or more episodes within the past year among bisexual youth was 24% compared to 16% among gay or lesbian youth. 9% among youth who are questioning their sexual identity, and just 3% among heterosexual youth. So consistently, we see that bisexual individuals demonstrate greater risk. My next question, wondering, okay, why one, that rates of self-injury are so high among sexual minority and gender nonconforming individuals and in youth, but also within each of those groups, why some are higher than others, like bisexual orientation, why that's higher than lesbian, gay orientation or queer, and then within the transgender, non-binary, gender nonconforming. The question regarding bisexual individuals, you can just imagine, again, they might experience unique challenges compared to gay or lesbian individuals. So they may experience stigma and rejection from both the majority population for having an identity that's not heterosexual and from within the LGBTQ identity community, I'm sorry, for not having an exclusive same gender relationships or attractions. For example, bisexual individuals report perceiving experiences of monosexism, biphobia, and homophobia as negatively affecting their emotional well-being. Youth who are bisexual may also have less access to protective factors such as family connectedness and school connectedness, even when compared to their gay or lesbian peers. Again, while there's few studies who look exclusively at bisexual youth, but some studies do suggest that these youth may just experience more risk factors such as sexual abuse, intimate partner violence, bullying, victimization. Um, So both intrapersonal and mainly interpersonal risk factors that are associated with these poor outcomes. 
So for those that identify as bisexual, they may not feel welcome in either community. Exactly. So you're not heterosexual, but you're not exclusively homosexual. So you're not going to be accepted in either potentially. That's a tough spot to be in. And the thing is, adolescents are more likely to identify as bisexual than gay or lesbian. So you have a larger population who might be at risk when you're talking about adolescents. Okay. And you also mentioned there is a difference within transgender and non-binary young people. Well, we need more research to examine those differences. So obtaining large enough samples to differentiate between the subgroups is challenging for some research, especially if you're not including a question on a national survey, then you're not going to have a large enough population to look at subgroup differences. So we don't have enough research looking at differences between those who identify as transgender and those who identify as gender non-binary. That's definitely an area where we need more research. Do you have any hypotheses related to what, if there might be any differences at all? I'm not sure. I need to see, again, because even when we ask the questions of your identity, it's normally together. Right. So some of the survey questions are not even differentiating the groups for us to collect that data. So the first thing is improving our survey questions or interview questions, depending on how we're collecting our data. But if we need large samples, we need epidemiological population based samples. So we need a question that differentiates the groups and then we'll have enough to be enough, a large enough sample to look at differences and factors. You've shared some examples of bully victimization in a partner violence, maybe not fitting in in whichever community, whether LGBTQ community or the heteronormative heterosexual community. Why do you think that these rates of self-injury among sexual minority and gender nonconforming individuals are so high? So I do want to make clear that the disparities are linked to stressors and discrimination associated with being in a socially stigmatized position in society, not from being LGBTQ in and of itself. So we look to the minority stress model and the gender minority stress model that was adapted for transgender individuals, which posit that the stigma, the discrimination, the prejudice create hostile and stressful environments that increase the risk of negative mental health outcomes among sexual and gender minority individuals, including self-injury. And these models suggest that there's processes that occur along a continuum from distal far-reaching factors. So these are stressors that are external events and conditions to the individual to more proximal stressors, which result in the internalization of negative messages, experiences, that combine to negatively impact the mental health of LGBTQ individuals. So if you're thinking for youth in particular, these distal factors include experiences of rejection, victimization, as we've said, discrimination related specifically to their LGBTQ identity. While the proximal stressors include that internalized LGBTQ stigma, the expectations of rejection from individuals outside of oneself, and then the feelings that needing to conceal one's LGBTQ identity. Um, so facing all of these stigmatizing stressors in combination with all the typical stressors that adolescents experience on a daily basis that we know is a lot, this leads to diminished psychological well-being and increased risk for mental health problems and engagement in self-injury. So for LGBTQ youth, the distal stressors of rejection and victimization may lead to ostracism and feelings of loneliness that are at the core of thwarted belongingness, which I'm sure you probably talked about of our interpersonal psychological theory of suicidal behavior. 
Additionally, those proximal stressors of internalized stigma and fears related to concealing one's identity and coming out may lead to the experience of perceived burdensomeness, another one of those core components. And our friend, Dr. Jenner Muhlenkamp actually tested this theory, the combination of these two theories in the engagement of self-injury among college students. And she found that this theory held up. In particular, the role of perceived burdensomeness was directly associated and moderated the relationship between minority stress and self-injury for the college students, LGBTQ college students. So there's a lot. So the key point, the key takeaway is that individuals who identify as LGBTQ are not at risk for self-injuring because they identify as LGBTQ, but because of how people respond to them identifying as LGBTQ. Yes, it is the stressors that the world creates for this population that puts them at risk. So if those weren't present, then we might suspect that rates of self-injury would be similar to adolescents in the general community. If we had an affirming, accepting society, we would have rates that were comparable to all other adolescents, which I think is 18% lifetime for adolescents, more comparable than the 50% that we see. Yeah, yeah, so much higher among this population that we're talking about today. You've done research in Minnesota, and you also have done work with some colleagues in Minnesota and have looked at self-injury among large-scale sample sizes of LGBTQ youth in Minnesota. And I like that you examine both risk factors and protective factors. You've mentioned some risk factors already. Are there any other ones that we haven't talked about that are important and worth noting right now? I'll just list them because, again, most of this research And when we're talking about the epidemiological research, it's general risk factors because we're not including, including on the Minnesota Student Survey, it's just depression, right? Anxiety, parent connectedness in general uh, that we look at for all adolescents. So what we really need is the LGBTQ specific factors. There is some limited research and mostly it comes from the suicide literature, but we can probably extrapolate that that would also be associated with self-injurious behavior. Again, intrapersonal distress that we've talked about. So you receive these negative messages from the environment and then you internalize that. You have internalized stigma, internalized homophobia or in transphobia and believe these negative messages about yourself. Obviously those victimization experiences that are directly associated with your LGBTQ identity. So it's not just general bullying, but you're bullied because you are perceived to be a sexual minority or a gender minority or because of your gender expression. That's a different type of risk factor than just general bullying. Uh, Then we're looking at that. Coming out distress if you're not in a supportive environment, family rejection, huge for this population. We have a huge homelessness problem among LGBTQ youth because they're rejected and possibly ejected from their homes. And community level events, policies that restrict the rights of LGBTQ individuals, those are also associated with poor outcomes. But I also like you take a positive perspective by looking at protective factors that I I think we sometimes oftentimes in psychology, don't look at as much. What are some common factors that are protective against self-injury, specifically among LGBTQ youth? So we have our general ones, parent connectedness, maybe friend connectedness that comes up on and off. Connections to other non-parental adults, 
which I'll come back to because that could be particularly important for this population. But the way we ask the question, we don't know who those adults are necessarily. School safety, higher grades, all of those things have come up in my general research. But we also see that the suicide literature, again, we need more of this literature related directly to self-injury, looking at sexual and gender identity specific factors include positive attitudes, about one's identity, coping skills that are directly related to managing all that minority stress that I mentioned before that's related to one's LGBTQ identity, family support related to and accepting of one's sexual and gender minority identity. So general is good, but we're talking about specifically related to these minority identities. Peer support and acceptance, particularly having pro-social LGBTQ peers fitting in within the community, teacher support and acceptance of LGBTQ students. So positive LGBTQ mentors, as well as connections to non-parental adults within the community can be very important for youth. Supportive and inclusive school climates. I might mention that again later. Youth spend so much time in school and policies that protect youth from harm. So all of these things are associated with reduced risk. And you see a lot of them are external. And if we had these supports external, then the youth wouldn't probably feeling the internalized stigma that would be more intrapersonal processes. You mentioned the peer aspect, peer support sometimes shows and sometimes doesn't show as a protective factor. Can you extrapolate a little? So we do know that genders and sexuality alliances are protective within school. They create, they're created within school environments and they do create positive school climates for LGBTQ students, but also student non-LGBTQ students within the school environment also report more positive school climates, less bullying and victimization behaviors. So those alliances create opportunities for peers to interact and support each other and affirm and become allies with the LGBT community. So we do know that those are important in creating positive climates for LGBTQ youth. In one study, you specifically looked at risk and protective factors for self-injury among transgender and gender nonconforming youth divided into three groups. One, those who had not self-injured in the past 12 months. Two, those who had and three, those who had self-injured in the past 12 months and had attempted suicide. What did you find in terms of risk and protective factors among those who had reported both engaging in self-injury and having attempted suicide compared to those who reported engaging in self-injury but not having attempted suicide? So we found that a mental health problem, relationship violence, bullying victimization, less parent connectedness, so you could kind of flip that and more parent connectedness was protective, higher grades were protective, higher levels of perceived school safety were protective, and running away from home was a risk factor associated with increased likelihood that youth who engaged in self-injury also had attempted suicide. I did want to just mention briefly bringing out the perceived school safety, which goes along with some of the things that we've talked about. Uh, so this has emerged in several of my studies with LGBTQ youth as being an important protective factor and not as much with youth in general, just looking at population-based samples of youth when I didn't pull out the LGBTQ population. And so school safety might mitigate the risk of self-injurious behavior associated with bullying, victimization, or teasing based specifically, again, on one's gender or sexual minority identity or gender expression. I should say one's perceived sexuality or gender identity or gender expression. 
Therefore, again, creating these school climates and policies that are supportive, affirming, and safe or protective of LGBTQ youth is really essential because this is an important protective factor. What about racial and ethnic minority LGBTQ youth who self-injure? What are some unique challenges you see faced by young people who self-injure that are a minority in multiple ways? You alluded to earlier. So they're minority in multiple ways. They're black, indigenous, youth of color that are also sexual minority and gender nonconforming. So we definitely need more intersectionality research to understand how an LGBTQ identity is intersectionally situated across racial and ethnic identities in a way that affects mental health. Um, So this intersection of identities may present really distinct stressors for LGBTQ youth compared to others, and minority stress may be more persistent and problematic for youth who occupy multiple more marginalized social positions. We know that stressors faced by racial and ethnic minorities in the U.S. may be combined with those related to being LGBTQ placing these youth at higher risk for poor mental health outcomes than youth without this multiple marginalized identities. Researchers have found that Black and Latinx youth subjected to multiple forms of discrimination, such as race and ethnicity, class, and gender discrimination, have poor mental and physical health outcomes above the effect of just experiencing one type of discrimination. There's a little bit of research also that shows that increased disparities are existent among LGBTQ youth of color. Racial and ethnic minority LGBT youth may encounter ethnically based oppression by other sexual minority individuals that may prevent their acceptance and integration into the LGBTQ community. Some racial and ethnic minority individuals have reported exclusion from LGBT community events and spaces. Research also shows that even racially diverse LGBTQ organizations can be perceived as predominantly serving the white LGBTQ population. So again, they're not even accepted within their community or their LGBTQ community. But then they also might not be accepted within their racial or ethnic community as well. So I just actually wrote a grant focused on Black LGBTQ youth. So reviewing some of that literature, which is very limited, by the way, um, we do see that Black LGBTQ youth may experience challenges in their identity development and additional stressors that may increase their risk of probably self-injury and suicidality compared to white LGBTQ youth. Some things we found that Black LGBTQ youth uh, may fear ridicule, rejection, and isolation from their Black friends and families if they were to disclose their sexuality or gender identity. Going back to that National School Climate Survey, it showed that Black LGBTQ students, or many of the LGBTQ students of color, experience victimization based on both their race or ethnicity and their LGBTQ identities. So for example, 43% of Black LGBTQ youth compared to just 11% of white LGBTQ youth experienced harassment or bullying based on their actual or perceived race. All LGBTQ youth, almost 95%, experienced some discrimination or victimization based on their sexual identities as well. All of the racial and ethnic minority LGBTQ youth were more likely to feel unsafe at school because of their racial or ethnic identity compared to white LGBTQ youth. And so for individuals who first identify with their racial group rather than their sexuality or gender group, and they derive support from their racial group, 
then maintaining that connection to this group may prevent them from disclosing their sexuality or gender identity. So then they're concealing their identity um, if they fear that they're going to be rejected by their racial group. So this internal conflict that they feel um, between their sexuality or gender identity and then their cultural expectations, for example, of being Black, then may further isolate them from others when they're faced with challenges including obtaining mental health services if they need it or social support that it's related to their sexuality or their gender identity. Wow, that's really heartbreaking to think about just not being accepted anywhere, right. whether racial identity being different and within that same race, having a different sexual orientation or gender identity. And then even within the LGBTQ community, maybe not feeling welcome there. One thing that might come up for some individuals relates to religion or religiosity, because this can be an important aspect of one's identity or culture. And so when thinking about intersectionality research, there are certain cultures that just value religion. For example, Black LGBTQ youth may be further challenged by the multiple intersections of their racial identity, their sexual or gender identity, and religiosity. So we do know that religiosity and religious engagement are usually protective against poor mental health outcomes, but we don't really know that research is much less clear when we're talking about LGBTQ populations. Researchers found that two thirds of LGBTQ individuals reported experiencing internalized homophobia from religious messages that preach sinfulness of same-sex sexual attraction and the need for repentance. And this internalized homophobia then can lead to anxiety, depression, and suicidality that arise from feelings of guilt, shame, and self-blaming. So religious affiliation that results in this internalized homophobia or transphobia could present more significant stressors that affect the mental health of LGBTQ individuals, especially for those whose cultures prioritize religion and religious affiliation. And especially if these religious affiliations are advocating for any kind of LGBTQ conversion efforts, which is a significant risk factor in and of itself, then you're really putting these youth in potential harm. Yeah, I think considering religion and religiosity as a protective factor and sometimes a risk factor is important. And I do, I mentioned this in a previous episode, I do hope to, in the near future, do an episode or two exclusively on self-injury and its relationship to religion and religiosity and how those play together as protective and risk factors. Interesting. That, that would be great. I think we don't have a lot of research in that area. No, no, there's not a ton. My dissertation contributed a little bit to that research uh, a number of years ago, so it's obviously an interest of mine. I'm looking forward to doing an episode in the near future on that. And just hearing about these high rates of non-suicidal self-injury, about suicide attempts and suicide deaths among sexual minority and gender non-conforming people, I mean, it's just heartbreaking. And I hope people are contemplating that based on our conversation, based on our interview today. How do we as people regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of gender identity, and regardless of political stance or religious beliefs, how do we show care and love toward those that are different from us or that are gay, that are lesbian, bisexual, queer, transgender, and especially those that specifically engage in self-injury? So this may sound cheesy, but the first thought that comes to my mind is the welcome mat I plan to buy for my new house. And it says... In this house, we believe love is love, Black lives matter, science is real, feminism is for everyone, no human is illegal, 
and kindness is everything. So be welcoming, be a safe space, be understanding and accepting and never judgmental. Put aside your personal experiences and beliefs and be present and caring in the way that in front of you needs you to be for them. As one young adult in one of my studies suggested, try to understand and appreciate the unique situations and struggles that LGBTQ youth may be experiencing, such as abuse, abandonment, homelessness, feeling unsafe that may lead to some health risk behaviors, including self-injury. And then as always, help youth develop helpful coping strategies to deal with the just general adolescence stressors that we know they experience. And in particular, the unique minority stressors that we've talked about today that we know a lot of LGBTQ youth are experiencing. I really appreciate that. I think about my time when I was a fellow where I was doing my postdoctoral fellowship in Houston, and there's a program specifically for LGBTQ youth who are homeless, kicked out of their homes by their own parents as a parent myself, as a new father myself, like that just baffles me how, like I I couldn't imagine doing something like that or caring so much about someone's identity or orientation above and beyond their identity as my child and to just kick them out at their most vulnerable. And no wonder they might consider non-suicidal self-injury or suicide. And it's hard to think about that. Bringing this all together with our interview, Let's start with parents. This is really important, I think, as you mentioned, parent connectedness is a protective factor. What recommendations might you have for parents? Yeah, so it's important because parents for adolescents, number one important person in their lives, as much as they like to think it's peers that we know from our research that parents are the most important people in their children's lives, including during adolescence or especially during adolescence. And parental rejection is a significant risk factor associated with poor mental health outcomes for LGBTQ youth. Um, So they might be thrown out of their homes or they might experience abuse in their homes and choose to leave. Right? So making sure that parental acceptance is a huge protective factor. Um, researchers have found that accepting family behaviors and support in response to LGBTQ adolescent sexual orientation and gender expression are associated with lower levels of suicidal thoughts and behaviors, as well as lower levels of depression and substance use. And they also predicted greater self-esteem, social support and general health status and quality of life. So there's accepting behaviors related specifically to your child's sexual identity and gender identity is hugely impactful. For LGBTQ young people, sexuality-related social support from parents during adolescence also has long-lasting effects. It's associated with positive well-being in young adulthood. So you're impacting your child for a length of time, not solely within the present moment. Researchers found that LGBTQ youth who reported greater parental acceptance or more likely than those with more rejecting parents to report identity affirmation, so not having that internalized stigma, and fewer struggles with their identities, suggesting that that level of parental acceptance may affect adolescents' own acceptance of their sexual and gender minority identities. So examples of ways that parents can show acceptance include talking openly about their child's sexual orientation and gender identity, inviting their child's openly LGBTQ friends to join family activities, bringing their sexual or gender minority child to an LGBTQ youth organization or event, appreciating their child's clothing or hairstyle, even though it might not be typical for that child's gender, 
using preferred pronouns and using preferred names for children as well. Anything that you're showing that you are affirming and accepting of your child's identity is going to be hugely impactful. I can imagine some parents thinking, well, I accept and care and love my child, but not their behavior or their identity. So they may perceive themselves as being loving, but what response might you have to that? I would say that your child's identity is part of who your child is. So if you're not accepting and loving and affirming of your child's identity, then you're not completely accepting and loving of your child. So you need to love all of your child and make sure that your child feels that so they will love themselves. That's the most important protective factor, self-love. So make sure that your love is translating their own acceptance of themselves. Because if you, as I just said, if you're not accepting a part of their identity, that's where the internalized stigma can come in and they're not accepting and they feel bad about their own identities, which increases risk. Check our hearts with that one. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, whether clinicians or researchers? I'll start with professionals. I work in the College of Medicine, so my experience is more with healthcare providers, particularly pediatric family medicine providers. So we do know we need to just accept in this country that heteronormativity, cisnormativity are embedded within our healthcare system and our clinical environments, and they represent barriers for disclosure of patients' sexual and gender minority identities which then obscures the presence of LGBTQ patients within our healthcare system, as well as their unique healthcare needs. So research does show that LGBTQ individuals perceive clinicians' assumptions that patients may not be heterosexual, they may not be cisgender, as actual acknowledgments that make visible and they validate sexual and gender minority identities. So not going in with the perception that the person in front of you is a straight heterosexual man who identifies, who has a birth assigned sex as a man and identifies as a man, but not going in with that assumption then leads you to ask questions that are important and makes the person in front of you then feel validated and seen. Based on some of my research with pediatric healthcare providers, physicians need more training on working with LGBTQ youth, including feeling comfortable and competent to work with LGBTQ youth. So I do suggest clinicians seek out that training to improve their comfort and competence, as well as seek out experiences to interact with LGBTQ individuals in a clinical setting. So having the academics is important in medical school and residency, but also having the clinical experiences is important and having a good mentor. So a lot of the physicians learned by watching their attending interact with LGBTQ patients in a positive way as opposed to a negative way. Other things that I would suggest at a minimum, what we learned is that clinicians need to learn effective communication skills in working with these patients. So we do know that at a minimum, there's also unique healthcare experiences they need to know about, but physicians need to learn how to acquire information regarding one's sexual and gender identities because it's important to providing patient-centered healthcare. So we need to know, and so providers need to know how to initiate comfortable conversations about about these topics, such as asking about patients' preferred pronouns and preferred names, as well as their sexual identities, attractions, behaviors, and how to respond without judgment. And I will just say that responding without judgment includes both verbal and nonverbal cues. Adolescents are very keen on picking up on any kind of judgment, including nonverbal behaviors, which they told us in our interviews. So making sure that you do not respond with any type of judgment is important to making the person in front of you feel safe and accepted and comfortable. 
physicians need to learn about some of the unique healthcare needs of subgroups of LGBTQ youth. And they also, as we mentioned above, that they need to be mindful and understanding of the potential life circumstances and experiences that may explain some of the behavior that we're seeing. And you want to incorporate LGBTQ affirming practices into existing evidence-based mental health treatments if they're getting those kinds of treatments, such as equipping youth with those skills, coping skills to manage the minority stressors that are linked to LGBTQ identities that we discussed before. Having LGBTQ affirming treatments that leverage the LGBTQ pride and community building to help buffer some of that stigma related stress is also important as well. Do you have any recommendations specific to mental health professionals such as myself? Going back to incorporating LGBTQ specific affirming practices. And so understanding what some of those, as we were saying, unique experiences, life experiences and circumstances may be for this individual related to their LGBTQ identities, and then incorporating those skills. So you're not just, we know, we want to equip all young people with coping skills and put those tools in their toolbox to get through life, but LGBTQ youth need to say coping skills that are directly related to affirming their own identities and for managing, coping those minority stressors that might lead to internalized homophobia, internalized transphobia, all those stigmas. So what are the skills specific to managing those minority stressors? And then leveraging LGBTQ communities, connected. We talked about needing mentors, role models, non-parental adults within the community, friends within the community for support. So leveraging those community, LGBTQ specific community resources to support a young person can be helpful. Recognizing that, and it could be the case for adolescents, but home might not be the most supportive place. And for young people in LGBTQ people in particular, which I was going to mention later, but they might need to create families of support outside or choose families that are supportive outside of their families of origin. And so giving them permission to find those individuals to provide them with the support and care that they need that may not be coming if they're having a rejecting family. And recommendations for researchers? So based on our review of the literature, really we need more research on representative samples of LGBTQ youth that come from the general population. We need longitudinal research is really lacking. Studies that include identity specific factors, particularly those protective factors that can moderate risk that are modifiable rather than solely focusing on risk. We want to look at research across subgroups of LGBTQ youth because we've already discussed that there are differences and intersectionality research is really needed. We need large samples for that, but we need to conduct research with racially and ethnically diverse LGBTQ youth. Also, if I can mention youth spend a lot of time in school. So if I could provide a few recommendations for schools as well. So really, and people can go to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and find these, but based on the CDC best practices really to meet the needs of LGBTQ youth are the existence of LGBTQ groups in schools, such as those genders and sexualities alliances, identification of safe spaces for LGBTQ students in schools, policies that prohibit harassment and bullying based on sexual orientation and gender identity, the provision of referrals to health and mental health service providers with experience serving LGBTQ students. So I would also go back to if there's any clinician who doesn't feel comfortable with this population, don't try to be helpful. 
refer the young person to someone who's actually competent and can be helpful to the young person. And LGBTQ inclusive curricula can also really change the school climate. And all these recommendations are based on the research, looking at the relationship between school climates and mental health among LGBTQ youth. And all of these things can better improve the mental health of these youth. And based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? So I alluded to this a little bit. For some LGBTQ youth, their families of origin are not safe spaces or sources of support. So these youth may need to create families of choice that provide greater support, connectedness, and acceptance than their families of origin. Having LGBTQ mentors and role models can also be very helpful and important. So I would suggest LGBTQ youths surround themselves with pro-social peers and adults who make them feel good about themselves, who value and affirm them, and who provide the support, acceptance, and connection that they need and that they definitely deserve. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Talia Farrow, for sharing your vast knowledge about this topic and and your passion. I know a lot of people listening, they may not know many people from the LGBTQ community. Or think they know. Or think they know. Yeah, that's a good point. You mentioned concealing their identity. So they may not know, they may not think they know, or those listening might be part of this community. And my hope really today, and I hope it's really come through, is to establish and build an empathy that an individual would be so distressed about a minority status that they would consider suicide, but they would also consider specifically non-suicidal self-injury, which this podcast is dedicated to. And obviously, I care about that, you care about that, and anyone listening cares about those who self-injure. If you're talking about, what is it, 40% of, or 50% of LGBTQ individuals engaging in self-injury, that's just too much. That's just too much. And we need to do something about it. And my hope is that our interview today might take some additional steps and accelerate us toward healing among those individuals. So thank you again for joining Dr. Talia Farrow. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow ISSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.